Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 398 with Dr. Donna Hicks. Donna has a world of experience, both from some pretty scary dangerous conflict zones, as well as academic research to figure out what's at the bottom of a whole lot of conflicts, what's to be done, so you'll learn, one, how violating another's dignity is at the root of many conflicts, two, for everyday dignities people suffer at work, and three, business reasons to honor dignity in the work environment. So if you want to check out the show notes, the transcript, or the links to items we've referenced, you'll find it over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash f398. Now, here's Donna's story. Dr. Donna Hicks is an associate at the Weatherhead Center for International Affairs at Harvard University. She's facilitated dialogues and numerous unofficial diplomatic efforts in the Middle East, Sri Lanka, Cambodia, Colombia, Cuba, Libya, and Syria. She was a consultant to the BBC in Northern Ireland, where she co-facilitated a television series called Facing the Truth with Archbishop Desmond Tutu. She has taught courses in conflict resolution at Harvard, Clark, and Columbia Universities and conducts training seminars in the U.S. and abroad on dignity leadership training and on the role dignity plays in resolving conflict. She consults to corporations, schools, churches, and non-government organizations. Her book, Dignity, Its Essential Role in Resolving Conflict, was published by Yale University Press in 2011. Her second book, Leading with Dignity, How to Create a Culture that Brings Out the Best in People, was published by Yale University Press in August of 2018. So thanks to Donna for spending some time with us and thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. One sponsor to check out is LinkedIn Jobs. Did you know that you can post a job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome? And with a fresh year, perhaps you're like many small business owners looking for some fresh insight and talent to make 2024 extra amazing. Well, LinkedIn Jobs has created tremendous tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. I love how they make it so easy with their promotion and selection tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. No, no, no. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Here's some fun facts. 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours, and small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash awesome. That's linkedin.com slash B-E-A-W-E-S-O-M-E, as in you are being awesome, be awesome, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Here is Donna. Donna, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm excited to dig into your wisdom. And I understand that much of it comes from really the front lines in terms of conflict resolution work where where things can be kind of spooky. Could you maybe open us up by sharing a story of, of maybe when you were close to danger? Well, there's so many, but you know, there, there's a kind of funny one I'd love, I'd like to share with you. And that is that during the height of the conflict in Colombia, in South America, between the government and the rebel groups, I was asked to facilitate a, a workshop and, you know, between, uh, with, uh, with members of, uh, with the Colombian army and different groups within the government. And, I yeah, sure, I'll do this. This sounds really interesting. I'd been working in that conflict for qu- quite a few years, but this was kind of special in the sense that it was in Cartagena, and we were meeting at the presidential palace in Cartagena. And so I arrived a couple of days early just to kind of adjust and 
so on. And I was I stayed in this lovely hotel right on the, on the water and in, in right in the old city. Actually, it's a beautiful old 15th century city, so it's charming. And I I'm a runner, so I decided, gee, I'm going to get up really early the ne- you know the next day after I run. I'm going to go running along the the wall of the old city and. So I, I did. I got up and I was really early six o'clock and out there right as the sun was rising. And all of a sudden I turned around. I felt like somebody was following me and it, it sort of felt creepy. I turned around and there were two military guys with machine guns running with me because they didn't think it was safe for me to be out there running on my own at six o'clock in the morning. But, you know, it never even occurred to me. I mean, this is how naive in some ways I was because I thought, oh, let's just go out for a run. And here I was in this, you know, conflict zone, even though it was a, is a very, in some ways, very safe city. But I didn't even know they had assigned me bodyguards. So, I mean, that was one of the funniest. I, but, and then another one I just have to share with you was when we were working, my partner and I were working in Sri Lanka during the time the war was really active there. And we decided that we're trying to bring the parties together for dialogues. And and we recognized that there was no way that we're going to have a meaningful dialogue if we couldn't get to the rebels and get the rebels. I mean, these are these are people who are considered terrorists. They were on the terrorist list by the U.S. government. And and my partner and I said, you know, we've just got to do this. We have to in order to do anything that's going to contribute, because if you don't have the major parties at the table, who are you going to get to make decisions? Anyway, very long story short, we got this Catholic priest to take us up to where the rebels were staying in the rebel territory, which nobody could get into. But this Catholic priest got us in there. And it was just one of those moments where I was, you know, we were were in a boat, this tiny little boat going across this lagoon at about two o'clock in the morning, so we wouldn't be you know, we wouldn't be discovered. And I'm thinking, oh my God, my husband is going to kill me. What am I doing? And, you know, here we had these, these machine guns surrounding us. And, and so, but, you know, it all worked out in the end, Pete, because uh, we really did, it was, it did help the, uh, our efforts to try to bring people because they gave their blessings to have certain people sitting at the table with us. But again, it was, I don't know, I guess when my number's up, my number's going to be up because I have been in so many perilous situations without even thinking about it. We just, we were so determined to do the right thing and get the job done. So uh, we can spend the whole time talking about this, but I'm sure you want to talk about dignity. Well, well uh, indeed, but well, that is exciting. And well, I think it just sort of lends credibility to, to everything you say in terms of, you know, I, I've seen this work in situations where, where folks wanted to kill one another. So mm-hmm. I think that's handy. So, so maybe you could, I guess, make the bridge for us in terms of how does your research on dignity in in those kinds of conflict environments really port over into the just normal workplace interactions? Well, what happened was that, you know, I was working for all those years in different parts of the world on these intractable conflicts. And it, it was really clear to me that there was a psychological dimension to these conflicts. And because these were people who we would bring together to try to come up with an agreement you know, to have discussions about how to end the violence and end the conflict. And they were smart people. They weren't uh, people who didn't understand how to actually make a sign an agreement. They, they knew exactly what they had to do. But for some reason, something was stopping them. They couldn't get to an agreement. And I always said, look, you know, there's something else going on here. There's some deep emotional 
aspects to this resistance of, you know, to finding a way out of this. And again, to make a very long story short, what I finally realized was that these people from both sides of the divide were feeling so angry and resentful for being treated the way they were being treated by the other side. If they could put words to it, they'd say something like, you know, how dare you treat us this way? And don't you see we're human beings? And I thought, this is what's preventing them. They need to have a conversation about this, about how being treated as if they weren't even human beings. And then I realized that that's, at the end of the day, this was about their dignity. And so, I mean, that was, that was a big light bulb went off for me. And it was a, a major insight that led to me thinking about how to have dignity discussions with these parties before we l- try to sign on to an agreement. So that, that's basically what I did. And then I wrote about it, and, and it was online, and somebody from the corporate world read this description of what they felt, you know, what I felt was really missing in our understanding of how to resolve conflicts, and that is how to address these issues of dignity and these deep emotional resentments that they felt before they could go and, and resolve the conflict. And this one guy, you know, consultant called me up and he said, you know, I've been reading your stuff, stuff online and, and I think, I'm, he said, I've been working for a major corporation for many years and we can't figure out why we can't come to an agreement with management and, you know, the employees. And so he said, would you mind coming and talking to some of the senior VPs about your dignity approach to conflict resolution? And lo and behold, I did that. We discovered that, of course, some of the underlying root causes of the differences between management and employees that they couldn't get past were dignity related. And that's when the floodgates opened, Pete, because once I started in on that, that organization, I worked with this organization for about five years. It was, I got calls from healthcare, from education, from all these different arenas who said, we think you've nailed our problem. We think that our people are feeling really upset about the way they're being treated in the workplace. And we think we need you. (laughs) You know, they say, we think we need you to come and help us try to create a culture where people feel that their dignity is being honored. Well, so I'd love it if you could just maybe paint a little bit of a picture in terms of in the workplace, what are some ways that dignity is is dishonored? And and I guess I'm thinking it. I have all these ISIS videos playing in my head right now. You know, we're not you have um, the what? doing you know dramatic torture or, oh, right, or right, killing right. in in the workplace. So, what are the ways in which uh, folks are are feeling dishonored? Yeah, these are everyday indignities we're talking about. We're not talking about things that where people break the law or we're not talking about people out there, you know, fist fighting or anything like that. We're talking about ways in which people, especially employees, the bot, the management employee relationships where, where the people in positions of power, just, first of all, let me just say, we're not talking about bad people here committing these acts of indignities towards their workers. That's not the case whatsoever. It's just that people who don't understand the sensitivity and the volatility volatility around the way people are being treated, if you don't get that, if you don't understand the effect that you have on people, and most people don't, by the way, you're going to end up violating people's dignity. So what would that look like in the workplace? Well, what that looks like, so for example, oftentimes people will sort of unconsciously discriminate against 
one group or the other. So, for example, some leaders may have favorites in their in their work, you know, their direct reports, and they may not even realize how often they're choosing these favorites over some other, let's say, minority groups or women or, I mean, it, it's so easy to have your identity violated and feel like you're treated as less than simply because you're a member of some group. This is the, the first element of dignity about around people wanting their identity accepted. Or you can be left out of a meeting that you feel Let's say you've worked on a project for three months and you aren't asked to be a part of that meeting. People want a sense of belonging and inclusion, especially on projects that they've worked on, or simply feel like they're being treated unfairly, where one person gets more time and attention or one person gets paid a little bit more or less. And fairness is a, is a really, a really common, a common a violation of dignity. But the one that's the most astonishing that you might be surprised to learn, Pete, is that people, when I did my interviews with people in the, doesn't matter which organization it was, because it was all the same, I would ask people to tell me ways in which they felt their dignity is being violated the most. And the one element of dignity that people reported 80% of the time was the element of safety. Now you might think, safety, what? Well, it's not physical safety. And I would ask them to explain to me, what do you mean by safety? And they said, well, we don't feel safe to speak up when something bad happens to us, especially when something bad happens, you know, when our employer, our boss treats us badly because we're terrified we won't get a good performance review or if we speak up and say something that he or she doesn't want to hear or, you know, feels this is, you know, a violation of their dignity. So this idea of safety, the needing to feel that you don't, you can't speak up to your boss when he or she harms you in some way. I just, I don't know about you, but that one surprised me that that was the most violated element of dignity in, in every organization that I went into. Well, that, that's intriguing. And, and this has really come up again and again on the show. And, and I think about Google's work with psychological safety as well. Mm-hmm. It's a big one. So I'd love to spend some more time on it. And let's hear. So they think it's not safe to speak up because there may be a retaliation. And, and one format of that retaliation is a bad performance review. Can you share? That's one. Well, what are some yeah. of the others? Because because I think that there there may be many managers who who've got their their hands in the air, like, what's not safe about speaking up? I need your sure. ideas. What's going on? Sure. Well, but you know, speaking up is is requires a an openness on the part of the person that you're speaking up to. So one of the things that I've discovered also in my research is that people don't like getting feedback. That it's people interpret it as criticism. And there's, I mean, look, we all know this, you know, we, none of us likes to get feedback saying what we've done wrong, right? It's, it's just an unpleasant experience. But because many of the managers and people in positions of authority and leadership with whom I've worked, they've never had any experience with asking for feedback in a way that isn't criticism, but feedback that is helpful because the person has a blind spot. You know, all of us have blind spots. Everybody has blind spots. And the people who work the most, the closest to us and who are in our environment most of the time, they know what our blind spots are. We might not know, but you ask any of them and they'll tell you what your blind spots are. 
So being able to speak up and to say, gee, to your boss, you know what, in that staff meeting the other day when you were making jokes and about me and I was the only one who wasn't laughing, that was a really embarrassing experience for me. You probably didn't mean it. You probably didn't understand the impact that it had on me. But the fact is, it was really hurtful. So, you know, giving, can you imagine giving your boss that kind of feedback? It would be wonderful to be able to do that. So the safety and the, re- the resistance to feedback and the, the lack of openness to understanding what our blind spots are, all these things are psychological skills that, I mean, really do have to be developed because, you know, again, we want to hear that not, we don't want to use feedback as a weapon. We want to use it as a helpful way to show someone the unintended consequences of his or her behavior. That's a growth experience. So I'm telling you, every time I went into an organization, very few managers and and leaders were open to having this face-to-face feedback with their direct reports. Right. And this Harvard Business Review study has come up a few times that the majority of managers are just uncomfortable interacting with their their workers like on anything. (laughs) Which is striking. So I'd love to hear a little bit more detail in terms of, of painting a picture for how does one you know exhibit uh, openness versus closeness, sure, uh, resistance to feedback versus a welcomingness to feedback. Because in a way, you said indeed people don't like getting feedback in which they're they're learning uh, what they've done wrong. But nonetheless, mm-hmm. we we need it and we want to convey an openness and a a non resistance to it. So how do you play that game? I say, look, this is where, here's the research. People, it's clear that dignity is something really important to people. I mean, I have some neuroscience research to show that when people's dignity is violated, it actually shows up in the brain in the same area uh, as a physical wound. This isn't just some touchy-feely stuff that we, oh, how, you know, we got to be nice to people. No, this is something where the harm that's done with a dignity violation is, in the brain anyway, equivalent to the harm that people experience when they have a physical wound. So that this is really serious stuff. And once people get that, once people recognize, oh my gosh, this is serious stuff. And you're right, Donna, I have not been thinking about the effect that I have on other people. And I haven't, and, and it's not because, as I said, because they're bad people, it's because they just simply have not been exposed to this kind of education. So my first, you know, my first job is to educate, just let, give people what I know about dignity. And then once they have that awareness and they have that knowledge, because, and then people say to me, oh, Donna, this is common sense. Of course, this is all true. And I say to them, yes, it's common sense, but it's not common knowledge. We do have to learn this. So once they develop that sensitivity about how people actually flourish when they're treated well and they suffer when they're treated badly. So this is this is a real simple truth we're talking about here. This isn't something you have to get a PhD uh, from Harvard in order to understand. Little kids understand this. So once we get that and they understand, gee, maybe it is important for me to get feedback from my people. And it's not because it's not important because I want to treat my people well. That's real that is important. But the other personal for personal development, it's important because you don't want to walk around the world violating people's dignity unknowingly, because the fact is you're probably violating the dignity of people in your family and in, you know, people who are close to you. So this doesn't just begin and end in the workplace. This is a life skill that we're trying to help people with. 
and just being open to, you know, some feedback to say, gee, you know, and again, it's the way it's delivered, right? We, we want people to also learn how to deliver that feedback in addition to how to accept it. So on the other hand, on the other side of this, I work with the employees and have, have helped them figure out how to give this feedback in a way where people don't feel threatened, don't feel criticized, and don't feel as if this is something that they want to avoid. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, so, so a few things there. When it comes to the particular behaviors associated with conveying the, the openness and, and non-resistance, what does that look like? Well, first of all, I mean, the hope is that, and when you want to create a culture of dignity, the hope is that you, your people know that you, like you announce to them when you hire them and when you work with them, that you really want to know if there are times when uh, he, let's say it's a he in this case, that when your boss who says, you know, something that's hurtful, you have to tell them, I want to know this. This is for my own growth and development, and I certainly don't want to be treating you badly. So there are ways of saying this to your people, and you have to be explicit about it. You have to say, I want this feedback. I certainly don't want you to, you know, be afraid of me or not feel safe in my environment. So, you know, it it goes something like that. And then you also have to be willing to, to actually carry through, you know, and do it. It's all about making yourself vulnerable, Pete, as a leader. It's about making yourself vulnerable so that you're not trying to cover up your mistakes or you're not trying to push people away when they are, you know, approaching you with some feedback. So it looks like what vulnerability feels like. (laughs) Let's put it that way. You have to create that sense of safety for them to say, yep, you know, I know this is going to be hard for you because you're, you're fighting resistances. Because one of the other things that we have this sort of a biological reality inside us is we resist confrontation. We don't like, you know, going to somebody with feedback. So we've got a double resistance, a sort of double, a double blind problem here because there's blindness and there's resistance on both sides. So it's hard. It's hard. But I'll tell you what, with practice, I have seen people do this in such a way that by the end of a session where let's just say there's one employee and a manager having having a problem, what I have seen many times, once this, they become skilled in, in, in asking for feedback and they become skilled in giving feedback, that the people end up feeling really closer to each other than they did before, you know, even before there was a problem. And when you make yourself that vulnerable, the intimacy that gets created in that space is just lovely. Well, and so I'm curious then when, when folks share the things and they're not fun to hear, and you, you think the other person is, I don't know, mistaken, <laughs> shall we say, in what they're, they're sharing. Kind of emotionally, internally, how do you kind of deal with your own, I don't know, resistance to vulnerability or uh, tendency toward defensiveness? Yeah. Uh, how do you manage yourself? Well, this is where a good coach comes, <laughs> comes into the picture, or what I call a dignity buddy. But one of the things that I ask people to do is to get someone with them, I mean, to, to, to invite someone to become your dignity partner, as it were. And so let's just say it's somebody at work whom you really trust. Say you're, you and I are both managers and we, are, we have made a commitment to trying to be more open and be more vulnerable with our people and ask for feedback. And if I feel 
you know, I feel that resistance coming up because we all know what it feels like. And if I'm not being as open that I, as I'm sort of aspiring to be with this, this dignity training, then I, I turn to my dignity partner and I say, help me with this, right? I'm fighting this. Is there any truth? Because you can always check out what the feedback is with your, with your trusted partner. So it's, <laughs> it takes some, some brave people to uh, corroborate that evidence. And, uh, but this is what we need. I mean, this is what we need to be doing for each other. It is, you know, it's hard to do this on our own and to walk away from that and feeling so embarrassed and feeling like, oh my gosh, did I really make that person feel that way? Did she really, you know, did I, was I that insulting? And all that is really hard until you get used to it, until you, it's like developing a muscle, really. You try to normalize this process. It's just that these resistances, we have so many of these resistances. Resistance to feedback is just one. So we have to fight these things if we want to lead with dignity. That's, that's just the way it is. This isn't, this isn't easy. Well, so I'd love to zoom out a little bit. When you talk about the, the education and in terms of there's a lot of ignorance and we've got a lot of sensitivity to the ways that we are uh, having our dignity violated could you share a couple of those gems in terms of of the research that is particularly you know striking and shocking for folks? So we heard that uh, the neuroscience show is that when folks have their dignity violated, it it's experienced in the brain like a physical wound. That, that's right. kind of wild. So do you have any other little gems like that, as well as the the proof points that point to? Hey, folks really do flourish when treated well and, and suffer when treated badly. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's lots of research out there. I'm just trying in terms of how people respond. You know, one of the pretty amazing pieces of research that I came across was, you, you probably already know it, but when this is largely done by business ethicists, this research, and I'm, I'm connected with several, uh, several different groups of, of, of business ethicists around these issues of dignity in the workplace. And what they've discovered is that when people feel that their dignity is honored in the work environment, several things happen. Number one, people are much more willing to give discretionary energy. Their loyalty increases, their productivity increases, employee engagement increases. All of these factors that are, you know, always so volatile within the workplace. And, you know, lo and behold, at the end of the day, and I don't even like to use this as the first bit of evidence, but profits actually increase when people feel treated well. So, I mean, this is, to me, this is the most cost-effective way of doing business. This is, yes, and you have to learn it. You have to make a commitment to how to lead with dignity. But if you're in a work environment and that work environment is toxic and your people are breathing that toxic energy, they're not going to give discretionary energy. They're not going to be loyal. They're going to be dreading coming into the workplace. So, I mean, it seems to me a no-brainer. Just Let's figure this out as as leaders of our organizations. If we can figure out how to create these cultures where people are feeling like they're being seen, they're being heard, they're being recognized, they're being responded to, they're feeling valued, why not? I mean, this is it just there's there's just so much evidence that this this works that I mean, I don't know. I mean, I don't know what the I, the argument would be against it. Well, I think most of the arguments against it, as I hear them, they they, they seem not so rigorous, like, oh, come on, it's called work for a reason, toughen yeah, up. Yeah, right, right. It's get like a thick skin life going is going to yeah. hand it to you on a silver platter, so get tougher. 
So I'm intrigued. You mentioned that there are uh, many ways that we can unknowingly violate others' dignity. I'd love it if you could give us kind of a checklist of of what not to do. Well, let me let me just share with you what I've I've been what my research has uncovered about how people want to be treated. All right, I've got something called the ten elements of dignity, and because the the flip side of them is what you don't want to do, right? Okay. So for, let me just run through this really quickly. These are the essential elements of dignity. This, this research I did with um, people all over the world. I asked them questions about times when their dignity was violated, when their dignity was honored. And, and the interesting thing that happened in this research was that no matter where I was in the world, there were, even though the context of the stories that they told were different, but at the end of the day, the emotional impact of what happened were, was exactly the same. And I created these 10 patterns that came out of this, these 10 elements, rather, that came out of these patterns of responses from all over, all over the world. So first of all, people want to have their identity accepted no matter who they are, you know, no matter their race, their religion, their ethnicity, sexual orientation, people just want to be accepted. The other thing is they want recognition when they've done a really good job, when they've done something well, they people want to be, I guess, praised for that is a, is a good word to use, but they want recognition for what they've contributed. And acknowledgement is another fundamental element of dignity. And that simply is that people want to be acknowledged for the suffering that they've endured. You know, people want to have Somebody say to them, oh, gosh, Pete, you went through that. That's terrible. I, I, it's just, you know, no human being should have had to go through that. So we all want that. We want acknowledgement of the suffering that we've endured. We want a sense of belonging and inclusion. I mean, there are programs all over the world on diversity and inclusion. Is it any wonder? Everybody wants to be included. Safety, we talked about that, um, that element. And again, I'm not so much talking about physical safety, but it's certainly a part of it but more like psychological safety. Fairness, we talked about that one. Independence, what I found is that people don't like to be micromanaged. They want to feel empowered to act on their own behalf, especially in the workplace. They don't. They just don't want somebody breathing down their necks. They want to be in control of their jobs and, and in large sense, in control of their lives. And People want to be understood. So this element of understanding is really important because if you think about how quickly we rush to judgment about people with so little data, you know, we do this automatically. And so people want to have an opportunity to talk about, you know, what's going on with them from their perspective instead of being judged and stereotyped. Benefit of the doubt. People want to feel, want to be treated as if they were trustworthy. And finally, the last element of dignity is accountability. So when something bad happens to somebody, they want an apology. They want the person who did the wrong to come to them and say, look, I'm really sorry. You know, I'm really sorry. So these 10 things, those are the positive ways of doing it. But if you want to turn them over to the other side, well, if you if you want to violate somebody's dignity, don't apologize. Don't treat them fairly. Or don't, you know, include them in something or, you know, don't give them recognition. So you see how these, you flip them over and this is what you want to avoid. You want to avoid all these things. But, and I'd like to say them more in the positive because that really 
it's the way that we can actually put these into practice. Accept people's identity. Don't judge them because of their race, their religion, and treat them fairly, safely. Give them a sense of safety. All these things. Again, once you hear them, Pete, you say, oh, these are common sense, but they are not common knowledge. So we just have to put them to work for our for us. Well, I'd love to dig in just a couple of them. So when it comes to accept identity, you mentioned judging for you know race or, or, or gender. And, and so it's not like, I do not accept that you are a woman, or I do not accept that, that you're black, but it's rather I impute some characteristic upon you based upon your identity markers. Is that what you mean by not accepting an identity? Well, I'm talking more about being discriminated against because of something to do with our identity. Uh, you know, we never really talked yet about the, what dignity is. And my very simple definition of dignity is that, is that it's our inherent value and our inherent worth. And that we were born with this dignity. This is something that is is that each and every one of us, as we come into this world, we are born equal in dignity. Now, I don't think we're born equal in status, that's for sure. And in the workplace, we're certainly, there's a hierarchical structure in the workplace. So we may not have equal status and some, you know, we have to look up to the people and they're our bosses and we have to do what they say. But the fact is that we're all equal in dignity. And when people feel like they're not treated as if they're equal in dignity but because they're this, that, or the other thing, or because of their religion, or, you know, that's when they feel violated, that they're, they're being singled out simply because they're a, a man or a woman or, or black or they're, um, you know, from uh, an ethnic group that is different from yours, you know. So it's more that. Pete, that people don't, just don't want to be treated as less than because of something about their oh, gotcha. identity that they can they can do nothing about. But well said, well said. Not treated less than. I'm, I'm with you. And then when it comes to being understood, uh, mm-hmm. could you share a little bit more about some of the best practices for 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 doing that well with regard to listening or, or, or whatever's there? Yeah. Well, you know, being understood. Uh, it seems like it's a simple thing, uh, but the fact is especially when we get into a little tiff with somebody and a little conflict, uh, because all these things I've discovered in that context, larger conflict context. And what happens is that the minute you start getting into an argument with someone or you don't, you don't agree with them, whatever, that the, what goes first is your curiosity about why that person feels the way she does, Right. So being understood means that if you want to practice this this element of dignity, you want to seek deeper understanding, especially under those circumstances where you're feeling riled up by this person. But you see, it's all going against our biology. It's going against our instincts because our instincts want us to, to fight. But when we feel those impulses coming up inside us, the most important thing is to try to push the pause button and try to figure out what's going on with this person, develop some curiosity about why she's so upset and say, look, I I don't really understand what's happening here. I have a feeling something more is going on with you. Can you explain to me what you're experiencing right now or, you know, something like that? But it's not our first impulse to do that. Our first impulse is to just not listen and not care about what's going on and to seek deeper understanding. Well, thank you. Well, Donna, tell me anything else you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things. Well, I think what I really want to impart, and I do this every time I give a talk, is that 
is for people to just be open to learning about this because it's something that each and every human being wants. We all want to be treated with dignity. In fact, I think it's our highest common denominator as human beings. And if we can make a commitment to trying to understand what the dignity narrative is of this person I'm interacting with, you know, to find out a little bit more about how this person has been treated in the past, especially if you're in a leadership position. You want to know what some of their sensitivities are. This stuff is all so helpful. And just learning about our own sensitivities, probably more important, Pete, because you know, if we're going to be in leadership positions and we're going to get triggered every second by some, some one of our employees, that's not good either. So we want to understand our own dignity past and how we got where we are. And, you know, like you said, there's so many people that just say, oh, the heck with this, just toughen up. Anybody can do this. You can just, you just have to get tough, right? I mean, you know this mentality. But the fact is you get so much farther with people. You bring out the best in people when when you treat them well. And learning how to do that, it doesn't take that much. It really doesn't, but it does take a commitment. Thank you. Well, now could you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? Well, you know, this this one quote I found, I can't even remember, it was so long ago, but I use it every single time I give a talk about dignity. Every single time, I'm, it's my opening slide and it says, the most exciting breakthroughs of the 21st century will not occur because of technology but because of an expanding concept of what it means to be human. That's John Nesbitt, by the way. And the reason why this struck me so is because dignity is at the core of what it means to be human. And as I told you earlier, the ignorance around it is encyclopedic. And the gap in our understanding of, of, of this part of our humanity is so enormous that I think he nailed this, this whole idea. And, and I connected it with dignity, because if we don't understand this basic fundamental aspect of our shared humanity, um, it, well, you're going to continue to see all the conflicts that are raging around the world, not to mention in our own country and in our families and our communities and our workplace. So this is a core component of what it means to be human. And I just think John Nesbitt just said it beautifully. Technology is not going to get us there but a deeper understanding of what our own humanity is and the humanity that we share with others. Love that one. And how about a favorite study or experiment or bit of research? Well, honestly, the best research that I came across was this neuroscience research, the social neuroscience by the, you know, the people out in UCLA, uh, Matt Lieberman and Naomi Eisenberg. They're doing astonishing research on the emotions of that are, that, we all share just by virtue of being human and how to be in connecting, loving connections with other people. So I think uh, their neuroscience research is so important because it's giving us some hard data to show things that in the past used to be just kind of psychological. People would call them, as I said earlier, touchy-feely. And, but now we have this, this evidence that it really does matter how we connect with other people, and it does matter how we treat people. This launched much of my, my whole development of my methodology was that research. And how about a favorite book? Well, you know, it's, it's actually, I'm thinking of a novel. I'm thinking of Dr. Zhivago. I just loved that book. Yeah, I just love that story. And most recently, there's a book by uh, George Valiant. It's a book about spirituality and uh, human development and how at the end of the day, we are deeply spiritual beings and we really need connections with other people. 
And, you know, because he did this lifelong research, he's a doctor here at the Harvard Medical School, and he did this lifelong research to show what people need in order to feel fulfilled. He has a combination of a very deep spiritual sense, and he has the science to back it up. Triumph of Experience, I think, was what that book was called, uh, the recent one. He's written several, but I think it's called The Triumph of Experience. And my other favorite author, of course, is E.O. Wilson. He's written several books. Um, the, the, this, the latest one that he wrote that I really love is called The Meaning of Life. He's, a, he's an evolutionary biologist. So any, any book of his that you all can get your hands on, that, that, that stuff is great. It's a great read. If you want to understand what it means to be human, by the way, that's that's the core. Oh, sure. Concern. Mm-hmm. And how about a favorite tool? So that it helps you be awesome at your job. All right, I'll tell you what my favorite tool is: storytelling. Because I realized that when I started writing about dignity, I realized I had to put my Harvard academic hat away and talk to people about how I discovered this issue of dignity and why I felt it was so important. And just like you opened with a store asking me a question about my conflict resolution work, I always use examples, stories to uh, illustrate the most important points that I want to get, you know, get in part to people because they, you know, people respond to stories much more than boring research, you know, you know, the data and the graphs and the this and that. If I tell them a compelling story, um, that really gets my point across. Mm-hmm. And how about favorite habit? Habit. Well, I love to exercise. I'm a sort of fitness. Well, I just love everything related to health and well-being, and and I'm I'm really trying. You know, I'm t- I've, I was sick for a while. I had a very serious illness of cancer, and I got through that. I think through by. You know, just uh, continuing all my exercise regime and eating well. And I mean, I think it's it's just my favorite habit is trying to live a good, fulfilled life. Mm, lovely. Well, and we're glad you're still here. So congrats. thank you. Me too. <laughs> and, and how about a particular nugget, something you share that really seems to connect and resonate with your audience or, or, or listeners yeah. or readers? Well, you know, there's, I always say that, and I said, I mentioned this in a different context earlier, but I always share what I call the the most simple truth that I've discovered with my dignity research. And the simple truth is that when we're treated badly, we suffer. And when we're treated well, we flourish. And that simple truth, I mean, that was tweeted out the other day. And I quit, you can't imagine how many uh, retweets and, you know, likes I got. I, I didn't even do it. Someone was was quoting me. And that just simply touches a nerve with people. You know, treat people well, and they'll flourish. Treat people badly, and they'll suffer. So what do you what do you want to do? You know, how do you want to live your life? Do you want to live your life treating people well or badly, making them suffer or making them flourish? So I, I just think that's pretty basic. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? Yeah, my website is Dr. Uh, lowercase Dr. 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 Donna Hicks.com, um, and I am on Twitter. And what else? Um, I think that's about it. All right. And do you have a final challenge or call to action for folks seeking to be awesome at their jobs? Oh, just, you know, I think, again, it's really try to understand how powerful this concept of dignity is. Try to make it work for you. Try to make it work for your relationships. Because I have to say, it's one of those things that once you get it into your head, and you understand it, and you use it as a lens to look through uh, what things that are 
complicated in your life and problem problems in your life, if you look at it through a dignity lens, I think you're going to see the solution really quickly. Well, Donna, thank you. This has been a whole lot of fun. I wish you all the best as you're spreading the good word about dignity and all that you're up to. Thank you. And you too. Thank you for this opportunity. Fascinating stuff from Donna. I really resonated with what she had to say with regard to the safety piece of things. Uh, Boy, this psychological safety is coming up again and again and again. It looks like the Google folks were on to something when they keyed in on this. And it's funny, I've seen that in my own world just in terms of if I'm interacting with folks that I'm getting some news that's bad or unpleasant, or I I wish it weren't the case. My wife and I came up with a, a fun little phrase that we use, which is, Thank you for letting me know. <laughs> I might mean, hey, our, our nanny quit. <laughs> That's put you in a bad mood and you wish that weren't true. It's like, Thank you for letting me know you're communicating. I appreciate that information. So that's just one little thing that we've been doing to bump up the psychological safety in our world. And I recommend you check out your own behaviors in terms of, are you doing stuff that makes people feel not so dignified when they are sharing information or news with you that that may not be so desirable. And how can you counteract that? That dignity buddy I thought was a pretty cool technique to gather that feedback and that ongoing accountability and awareness to make sure that you are refining those behaviors so that people do feel safe and they do perform better as a result and you get the information you need to make great things happen. Chris Edmonds said it well, very bluntly and succinctly once, people see stuff that's dumb all the time. And if you are not encouraging them to share that stuff well in your verbal and nonverbal behaviors, well, then you're just not going to get that stuff. You're not going to know about the stuff that's dumb that other people are observing. So great stuff. Reinforcing themes once again from some cool perspectives. Thanks to Donna. Hope you dug that. And more again, the show notes, the transcript, the links to items we've referenced. It's at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F398. If you haven't already, I recommend you push the subscribe button. If you do so, you're going to catch our next guest. It's Isaiah Hankel. He is talking about the science of intelligent achievement. All kinds of words there that I like. So we're going to learn all about that. Hope to get you there. Peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers. Subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.